The Irish writer D. H. Lawrence said, Money is our madness, our vast collective madness. D. H. Lawrence died in 1930, but if he was alive today, I don't think he'd see any reason to take back his statement about money. It is still our vast collective madness. Those who don't have it are desperate to get it. Just look at the success of the gambling industry. And those who have money are desperate, it seems, to get more of it. Just think of the two most famous footballers of this generation. Probably also the most highly paid footballers of this generation, but both of them have been in trouble for tax evasion in recent years. Wealth is our vast collective madness. Those who don't have it are desperate to get it. Those who have it are desperate to get more of it. And if you're the exception to that, then good for you. But I suspect that most of us would have to admit this madness has played a part in our lives too. To some degree, we have had or we have a bit of this madness in us. And as we turn to the book of James this morning, James has some things to say about wealth. Now, we might expect him to say wealth is unimportant or that it's something we shouldn't think about. But in fact, James does want us to think about it, and he is not going to tell us it is unimportant. His message for us this morning is that wealth is serious. So turn in your Bible to James chapter 5. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1216. And in the larger print Bibles, 1884. James chapter 5. And we're going to read the first six verses of the chapter. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is God's word. And the first thing to notice is that these verses are unique in the letter of James. What is it that makes them unique? Well, it is not the fact that they talk about wealth. The topic of wealth has come up several times before in the letter, in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2. So then, what is unique about these verses? 
What's unique is this is the only time in the letter when James is not speaking directly to Christians. We've noticed before how James is constantly saying, my brothers and sisters. Even when he has given a rebuke in this letter so far, he has given it in great hope that they will respond to the rebuke and that they will do what Jesus calls them to do. But in these six verses, James does not expect a response from the people he's talking to. In these verses, James is like an Old Testament prophet announcing doom on faraway pagan nations. But why announce doom on people who aren't going to listen to him? People who are very unlikely even to read his letter. People he doesn't expect to change in response to his letter. The answer is, the majority of the first Christians who did read James's letter were not wealthy. Some of them obviously were. We saw that when we looked at chapter 1. But the majority of these Christians were not wealthy. And as we'll see next week, they are suffering some amount of injustice at the hands of the rich people James is talking to here. So these verses have two aims. First of all, they're here to assure these Christians God is aware of what's going on, and it will be dealt with. Here's what God thinks about these wealthy people and the injustice they're carrying out. That's one purpose of these verses. But the other purpose is to help the Christians get their own thinking right when it comes to wealth, to get the right attitude to wealth themselves. So what God says through James to the wealthy people out there has the aim of teaching God's people, both those who are wealthy and those who aren't but would probably like to be. And the first thing James has to say about wealth is it's a false savior. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. We often hear the statement that money can't buy happiness. But that is not the point James is making here. James is saying, even if your money does make you happy and contented now, even if your wealth seems to make all your problems go away now, even if that's true, even if wealth seems to be saving you from sadness and sickness and worry, you need to recognize wealth is a false savior. It cannot save you in the long run. If you could see your true situation, you would be weeping and wailing, James says, because of the misery that's ahead of you. One of the things wealth does to us is we begin to believe it makes us secure. It lulls us into thinking because it seems to be solving our problems today, it will always be able to do that for us. And the flip side is, if we're not wealthy, 
or we think we're not wealthy, because the fact is, by global standards, most of us are, but we tend not to go by global standards. We tend to go by the people we see who have more than us. If we see ourselves as not wealthy, we tend to envy those who have more than us. If we had just a bit more of what they have, our problems would be solved. So whether we have wealth or not, we can begin to believe it's our Savior. Or it could be our Savior. Not that we'd call it our Savior, of course, but we can begin to treat it that way. We can begin to think of it that way. And we need to know the Bible never condemns wealth in and of itself. But the Bible often warns us about the great dangers of wealth. And one of those dangers is the false sense of security wealth gives us. And James wants us to agree, it is better not to have wealth than to have it and become spiritually careless because of it. That's what wealth has done for these people, the people in verse 1. They have trusted in their wealth instead of trusting in God. And so they've not considered their sinful condition before God. They haven't recognized their need for Jesus. And so they are going to meet God without being ready to meet him. Because of their spiritual carelessness, they're headed for eternal misery. And what good will their wealth do them then? What are the chances of it saving them then? In verse 2, James looks ahead to that time and he says to them, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Even if wealth could solve all your problems here and now, and that's a big if, but even if it could, wealth has a sell-by date. There will come a day when it fails you. Even if it works for you all through this life, it will fail you when you enter the eternity beyond this life. It can do nothing for you there. James says, in the face of the misery that's coming on you, your wealth is as useless as a heap of rotted banknotes and a pile of moth-eaten designer clothes. When you stand before God, that's what all of your wealth will be like. Useless. It won't buy you anything. It won't do anything to save you. And so, James says to us, who are listening into this, he says to us, as you consider the position of those godless rich people, don't envy them. Don't wish you were in their shoes. It's going to be miserable to be in their shoes. But you and I can be quite slippery us Christians. We can be very clever at wriggling out of the point God is making to us through His Word. And here, we might want to wriggle out of accepting James's point. And we might do it like this. We might say, okay, James, 
I know that rich non-Christians are in an unenviable position. I get that. They're not to be envied because they trust in their money instead of God. But I am a Christian. And I would never trust in wealth the way they do. I would never neglect eternal truths just because I was rich. I would never make the mistake of thinking wealth could save me eternally. All that I want is the security wealth can give me today. I know I can't take it with me, but it would be great to have a nice fat bank balance here and now. I don't want to store up wealth for eternity. I'm just interested in storing it up for the next 50 or 60 years. Well, if that's what we are thinking, James says to us, wealth is not for keeping. The misery that's coming on these rich people is not all because they trusted in their wealth and forgot about God. Misery is also coming on them because they kept hold of their wealth and wealth is not for holding on to. Look again at verse 3. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I don't think James's point is just that their wealth will rot in the future. I think he's saying it is already corroding now because it's not being put to any use. These people are just stockpiling it so they can feel secure now. Of course, silver and gold don't literally corrode, not in their pure form anyway. Just like money in an online bank account doesn't literally decay if it sits there untouched. But James is not making a point about molecular decay here. He's pointing out that wealth is not meant to be hoarded. That's not why God gave it to us. And so if we do hoard it, we are corrupting it. God did not put precious metals on this planet for you and I to try and hoard them. In the Bible, gold first appears in Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, we hear about all the good things on God's earth. We hear that God placed the man and woman in the midst of all those good things. And what were they to do with all of that bounty? All the rich resources of the earth? Genesis says they were to work it. They were to put it to work. And that included the gold. It was never for hoarding. God put it there for humanity to use well. Jesus said the same thing in the story he told about the three men who were each given bags of gold by their master. What happened with those three men? Well, if you've heard the story, you'll know that two of the men put the gold to work. One of the men buried it. 
And who was condemned by the master in the story? The guy who buried it. He was condemned because that is not what wealth is for. Whatever level of wealth we have, God has given it to us, and He has not given it so we can bury it in our bank accounts to feel secure. It's for putting to work. Look at the example here in verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So because these rich people have hoarded their wealth, other people have gone without. That's what happens when we hoard wealth. And verse 4 says, this does not go on without God noticing it. He hears the cries of those in need, those who could have been helped, those who went without because others were hoarding their wealth. And that's why verse 3 said to those who stockpile their wealth, that wealth is gathering maybe actual dust in a safe or gathering metaphorical dust in a bank account, but whatever kind of dust it's gathering, that hoarded wealth will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In the New Testament, the last days means the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So James says to these wealthy people, How foolish to hoard wealth when the next big event in God's calendar is Jesus' return. How foolish to risk getting caught on judgment day with your own personal hoard of buried treasure. If that happens, James says, that buried treasure will testify against you. It will be unavoidable, undeniable evidence that you kept what God does not intend us to keep. And God will know all about the cries of those who missed out as a consequence of your stockpiling. All of that will be part of the condemnation you experience for eternity. It will eat your flesh like fire. Does this have something to say to businesses and to institutions that are all about profit? Where those profits are pocketed by a select few at the top and very little makes its way to the workers at the bottom of the pile? Does this condemn businesses that would make workers take a pay cut or make workers redundant before they'd scale down the director's big bonus? Yes. These verses condemn that kind of hoarding of wealth in the hands of the few. But remember, these words are spoken to the rich outside the church, yes, but they're intended to teach those inside the church. And whether you and I consider ourselves wealthy or not, we are supposed to hear the challenge here. 
The wealth which does come our way is not for keeping. It's not for squirreling away so that we can feel secure about the years we have ahead of us on this earth. Now I hasten to add, it is not for me to tell you how much is enough for your retirement. I don't know the answer to that question for any of you. But as we saw in Jesus' story of the three men with their bags of gold, our heavenly master expects the wealth we have to go to work for him. Not to get buried, not to get taken out of circulation. What holds true outside the church holds true inside as well. When Christians hoard wealth, it means that others go without. Those who go without may be brothers and sisters in the church with legitimate financial difficulties. Or those who go without may be people in the UK and around the world who don't get to hear about Jesus because we prefer to hoard our money than use it to send out messengers around the world, to tell the world about Jesus. And I do not say this to point the finger at anyone. Last Sunday night, Steve mentioned the great generosity of this church. And I completely agree with what he said. God bless you for your generosity. Not just to Steve and myself and our families, but to all of the gospel causes we support as a church. And there are a lot of them. And God bless you for your generosity to one another. I'm sure I don't know half of the generosity you show to your brothers and sisters. But I do know about a fair bit of it. And it's to your great credit. So let's take this this morning as a reminder to us. Let's take it as fresh encouragement to us to keep going to continue investing our money generously in God's kingdom instead of hoarding it for our own sense of security. But of course, we're not all tempted to hoard our wealth. For some of us, the temptation goes in a quite different direction. When I was a teenager, a friend of mine had a poster on his bedroom wall. It was a picture of a Rolls-Royce parked outside a beautiful mansion. And the words on the poster said, my tastes are simple. I like to have the best. Now, in his defense, I do still see that friend occasionally, and he never did get a Rolls Royce or a mansion, nor is he likely to. As to whether he's still aiming for those things, I can't say. But isn't it true that for many of us, the temptation is not to stockpile wealth. The temptation is to spend it on catering to our taste for the best of everything. Why have cotton when you can have silk? And you can personalize that according to your own tastes. Why settle for less luxurious X? 
when you can have more luxurious, why? Bucket lists, those are a big thing these days. And I'm not going to say you shouldn't have a bucket list. But can't bucket lists just be a different version of the Rolls Royce and the mansion? Instead of the best material things, we want the best experiences. And can't the whole thing end up becoming pretty self-indulgent? As my spare resources get earmarked for stuff that I want to see and stuff that I want to do. Here in verse 5, James says to the rich people he's been speaking to out there, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Wealth is not for keeping, and it's not for living as well as we can either. That's what's being pinpointed here living to the max that our resources will allow us to live. The problem is, when we do that, when are we ever going to give sacrificially? Giving sacrificially means we choose to miss out on something that we could have done or we could have had. Something that we had the money for, but we choose to go without it, in order to give generously. So the application here is not never do anything nice. The application is not never have anything nice. The application is do you ever deny yourself anything nice that you could do or have? Is that part of your thinking and planning for whatever wealth you have? I'm going to shorten my bucket list a bit. I'm going to choose cotton instead of silk this time. I'm going to intentionally live less well than I could live so I can invest that money in God's kingdom instead. And the bottom line is, when you and I do live as well as we can, others miss out. You can see that in verse 6. Earlier, James challenged the hoarders about those who missed out because of their hoarding. Now his challenge is to the self-indulgers and the bucket listers in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James seems to be talking about the rich in his society who cheated the poor to such an extent that some of those poor actually starved to death. The Bible is full of warnings to those who cheat others out of their land or take away their ability to earn a wage. And even today in parts of the world, the consequences of that can be fatal. When those with wealth pamper themselves by living as well as they can, others become the victims of that self-indulgence. 
And in the end, it doesn't work out well for the self-indulgent person either. In verse 5, James says they have fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. Again, this is a reference to judgment day. But James pictures these self-indulgent people like cattle, fattening themselves up thinking they're having a great time gorging themselves, not realizing they're on their way to the slaughterhouse. James says that's what we're doing if we live in self-indulgence, living as well as we can so there's nothing left to share. If we do that, James says, we're forgetting there's a reckoning coming. And we don't want to arrive at that reckoning like a fat calf who spent their life pampering themselves and catering to themselves to the extent that others went without. Wealth is serious. By itself, it is not a bad thing. It can do great good. It is not a bad thing, but it is a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous whether we have it or not. Wanting to get it can be just as dangerous as having it. So how we think about it matters. And if we have any, what we do with it matters. So if any of us have ambitions for wealth, these verses challenge us to examine our ambitions and consider if they're godly ambitions. And whatever degree of wealth we have, we're being challenged to examine what we do with it and what we plan to do with it. The way to respond to this is not to decide how other people should be living. We covered that last week. James says, let God be God in the lives of other people. We don't have to oversee other people's accounts. We don't have to make assumptions about their accounts. Let them sort that out with God. Our response to this has to be personal. And maybe the way to respond is for each of us to ask ourselves, Am I comfortable with my attitude to wealth? Am I comfortable with what I do with the wealth I have? And then, more to the point, in the light of this passage in James, should I be comfortable? Or should I be a little uncomfortable? Should I be considering making some changes? Maybe small changes, maybe significant changes in order to make more investments in God's kingdom. As we read the last verse of our passage, I don't know if you noticed that last verse, but when you read it, it's hard, I think, not to think about Jesus. Jesus, the innocent one who was condemned and murdered by those who wanted to hold on to what they had 
and go on indulging themselves with their power and their high position and the wealth that went along with it. Jesus, the innocent one, went to the cross to pay for human sin, including the sin of using wealth selfishly, either being committed to stockpiling it or using it self-indulgently. Now, maybe there are some exceptions here this morning, as I said earlier, but I would guess even if you and I are pretty lenient on ourselves, even if we cut ourselves a lot of slack, I think most of us would still have to say, whether we have wealth or not, we have been guilty at times of thinking of it as a means to serve ourselves rather than a means to serve God. And so as we come to the Lord's table, it's a perfect opportunity for us to consider the innocent one who died for our sin. It's a perfect opportunity to give thanks for his self-sacrificing love, that he gave up everything in response to our great need. Let's use this time and the lead into this time to recommit to give this wonderful Savior all that we have, our soul, our life, our all, including our wealth or our dreams of wealth. Let's stand together and sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs>